So my name is Alex LeBlanc, and I'll be reading the scripture passage this morning for you. Um, so I'll be reading from Exodus chapter 3 um, through 417. If you have a house church Bible, you can find it on page 27. So please follow along as I read from Exodus chapter 3 through 417. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And then he said, do not come near me. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place with which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us now. Please let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold and jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Then Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. 
And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand to catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even those two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am of slow speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, oh my Lord, please send someone else. <laughs> then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. Thank you, Alex. My name is Jamie Borchick. I'm one of the preaching pastors here. Would you join me in a word of prayer before we unpack this? Father, thank you for your word. Thanks for this story and uh, the truth that we get to unpack this morning. pray you prepare our hearts and you would speak to us now. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we live in the age of this 24-hour news cycle that kind of never stops alerting us to all of the evils that plague our world today. All of the oppression and all of the injustice, all that's wrong in our world. So your friends post to Facebook and celebrities take to Twitter and uh, marchers hit the streets and they cry out that you should care. You should care about what's wrong in the world and you should do something about it. I mean, even as we've been sitting here this morning, some of your devices have buzzed in your pockets with notifications alerting you to the latest instance of injustice in the world. It might be climate change, or racism, or education inequality, or world hunger, or orphans, or poverty, or prison reform, or immigration, or refugees, or any number of other issues. All day long, we are inundated with cries of oppression. Well, last week, Phil kicked off our series in the book of Exodus. And like our 24-hour news cycle, the book of Exodus begins with the story of oppression. God's people are in slavery in Egypt. They're feeling forgotten by God. And they're facing increased oppression from Pharaoh. But the theme of our series is set free to live free. Because the book of Exodus is all about the God who steps into that situation of oppression to set people free both now and forever. Well, today... We come in the book of Exodus to the story that Alex so brilliantly read a moment ago. The story of Moses at the burning bush. 
And as we walk through it today, we're going to see three realities regarding these cries of oppression in our tragically broken world. Here's the first reality. The call to care is actually bigger than you think. The call to care is actually bigger than you think. At the end of Exodus chapter 2, Moses is far from Egypt. This man has an elite pedigree, you'll remember. He's a Hebrew, born a Hebrew, but he was raised in Pharaoh's household and he was groomed to lead from childhood. And he was a guy who was zealous for justice. In fact, he was so zealous that when he saw an Egyptian beating one of his Hebrew brothers, he intervened and he killed the Egyptian on the spot. That was Moses, kind of this self-reliant vigilante for justice, taking things into his own hands, going after it. But then what happened was Pharaoh found out. And Pharaoh found out and he went after Moses. And when Pharaoh came after him, at, at 40 years old, Moses fled. And he ran across the desert and he sat down by a well in the land of Midian. And for the next 40 years, he stayed there. He met a woman and he got married. He started a family. He had kids. And he took up a new job, a new career as a shepherd. His passion for justice fades and he no longer seems to care about what's happening to his people back in Egypt. Moses has moved on with his life. But there's another character in the story who hasn't moved on. In the final verses of chapter 2, the cry of the people comes up to God. And chapter 2, verse 25 tells us that God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. Even if Moses doesn't care anymore, God sees, God knows, God cares. And as chapter 3 begins, the stage has been set for God to act. For God to do something. Moses is out walking with his sheep one day when he sees this burning bush. It's this bush that's burning, but it's not burned up. It's, it's a sight he's never seen before. And Moses had never seen anything like this, so he turns to check it out. Now, quick sidebar. Some people have a hard time with some of the miraculous things that happen in the Bible, like the bush and like the signs that God gives Moses in chapter 4. But look, if there is a God who created everything out of nothing simply by speaking with his mouth, if that kind of God exists, then that God can no doubt show up in a burning bush or make a shepherd's staff turn into a snake. To say that miracles are impossible requires you to prove that an all-powerful God does not exist. But if the all-powerful God that we see in the Bible does exist, then that God can do whatever the heck he wants to do. And ain't nothing impossible for him. So don't rule him out, okay? Don't rule out the miracles. End sidebar. Now, Moses turns to check out this bush. And when he does, he finds way more than he bargained for. When he turns to look at the bush, he finds God himself. God speaks to him from the bush, and God introduces himself. Look at chapter 3, verse 6. I am the God of your father, and the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now Moses has been living far from his people for 40 years. And for most of his formative years before that, he was raised in Pharaoh's family. So the God of his ancestors may well be nothing more than a very distant memory for Moses by this time. But here, the God of his ancestors is speaking to him from this burning bush. And he's using these words that can't help but evoke fond memories inside of Moses of his past and of the family he used to know and of, of the God that he once knew. In this moment, God is no longer just a distant memory for Moses. In this moment, God is nothing less than very real. And so notice Moses' response here. He hides his face, afraid to look at God. Now, this is the standard protocol for anyone in the Bible who meets God like this. 
everyone who meets God face to face, they drop to their knees immediately and they hide their faces because of the sheer overwhelmingness of being in the presence of God. God's holiness is so overpowering. He's so other and overwhelming that you can't help but fall on your face. And if any of y'all ever bump into God face to face this side of eternity, you're going to be prepared to meet the dirt yourself. That's where it's going. But I can't help but wonder if Moses' fear in this moment isn't also partly a result of where he's at in life right now. Moses is a murderer. He's a guy who fled from his people and who now lives with outsiders. And here he is talking to God. Is he ashamed of what he's done? Does he fear judgment, not just for sin in general, but for the particularly glaring sin of his own life? It makes a whole lot of sense that Moses is scared out of his mind right in this moment. But notice what God does next. He tells the exiled murderer his plans. He tells Moses, I've surely seen the affliction of my people and heard their cry. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them and to bring them up to a good land. God says, I see the oppression. I hear the cries. I know the evil and the brokenness in the world, and I care, and I'm going to take action. Now imagine you're Moses in this moment. God just interrupted your nice leisurely stroll with your sheep with a newsflash. After decades of silence, God is speaking, and he's speaking to you, and he's telling you that he's going to do what his people have longed for him to do for generations. He's going to do what you once longed for him to do when you were back in Egypt. Like, if you're Moses, this is amazing news. You're like, God, come on. Go and do it. Go set some people free. I love this. But then verse 10 happens. And God tells you how he's going to do it. Look at verse 10. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people out of Egypt. In other words, Moses, I'm going to use you to do it. Now the word come here is actually the same word that's translated go two other times in this story. And so just in case Moses is a little dense here, God tells him three times, go, because I'm going to use you to do it. I mean, if you're Moses, up through verse 9, you're like, cool, go get it, God. But then verse 10 happens, and you get drafted into the mission. And that's a game changer. This isn't just a call to care about what's going on. This is a call to action. It's a call to join God in his mission. Yeah, we live in this world where we are constantly inundated with calls to care about all sorts of things. But the reality is that the call to care is actually way bigger than you think. God is a God who sees the affliction of his people and hears their cries and knows their sufferings. And he cares, but he doesn't stop with caring. He goes all the way to action. And when we think about God, we like that idea. We like the idea that God is going to do something about the evil in the world. I mean, even if if you're not sure, if you're here today and you're not sure what you believe about God, when you picture God, almost certainly you at least think of a God who's going to do something about the bad stuff in the world. Like a God who is for justice and who's going to right the wrongs. 
And that's who the God of the Bible is. So we like this. Until we get to verse 10. And God tells us to go. You know, all throughout the Bible, the way that God does something in the world is through people. Real people like you and like me. He uses real people to bring about his mighty acts of salvation. So it's Noah with the ark. It's Rahab at Jericho. It's Deborah and Gideon and Samson and Judges. It's David with Goliath. It's Esther in the face of genocide. It's the midwives in Exodus 1. And it's Moses in Exodus 3. And it's you and me today. The call to care is bigger than you think. It's not just a call to care. It's a call to action. And we may not have a burning bush, but we have something that the Apostle Peter calls more sure. We have the Word of God. We have this book. And this book is filled with commands to go and to take action for a world in need. In total, there are some 1,050 commands in the New Testament alone. Commands like go and make disciples of all nations. Commands like go and do likewise. Love your neighbor as yourself. Commands to love and obey God, to live righteously, to give generously, to do justice, to care for the vulnerable, to go on God's mission. Sometimes Christians spend way too long looking for God to tell us what he wants from us. We agonize over God's will for our lives, over what is he calling us to do? What job should I take? Where should I live? Who should I date or marry? We want a roadmap for our lives. And we're looking for a burning bush where God will speak clearly to us and tell us what to do. Y'all, God doesn't usually give us that. Instead, he gives us something more sure. He gives us the word. And if you want to know what God wants you to do with your life, start with this book. God is far more concerned about you going and doing the things that he has clearly laid out in this book than he is with what job you take or where you live or who you date. Now that's not to say you shouldn't think strategically and be wise about those life decisions. You should, and God cares about that stuff. But what he cares about most is about you going on his kingdom mission and engaging in the clear things that he calls all of us to in this book. If you are a follower of Christ here today, God has called you not just to care about the physical and spiritual oppression in the world, but to take action to remedy it. So whatever job you have, Wherever you live, whatever your relationship status, God has called you to take action on the great commission of making disciples of all nations and the great commandments of loving God and loving your neighbor. Are you going? Are you taking action? Are you living on the mission of God? The call to care is bigger than you think. So that's the first reality here. Now here's the second one. Second reality. The problem runs deeper than you think. The problem runs deeper than you think. Moses' response in verse 11 begins with a little three-letter word. But. This is the first of four problems with this mission that Moses brings to God in this story. And his problems fall into two categories. The first category is the category of personal inadequacy. Look at verse 11. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? 
You remember, Moses ran scared from Egypt. He's a murderer and a fugitive. Now he's a, he, tr- he tried once before to take action and his people rejected him. And now he's a shepherd and he's old. And God has just told him that he's going to go and confront the most powerful ruler in the world. And in chapter 4 verse 10, Moses adds to all of that the fact that he's also not eloquent. He's not a good public speaker. So Moses is afraid he's going to embarrass himself by trying to talk in public. So in light of all that, Moses looks at God and he's like, God, you got the wrong guy. My past is filled with failure. My present lacks any kind of real power. I'm a nobody. I ain't got it. And how many of us feel the same way? Like who in here today, who who of you feels like, I don't have the right resume? Or I'm not smart enough or pretty enough? I'm I'm too old or I'm I'm too young? Or or, or I've, I've failed too many times? So who am I to make a difference? Who am I to be used by God? God, you got the wrong guy. Now for Moses, the doubts don't stop there. The only thing he's confident about in this story is that other people are going to doubt him too. Second category of problems he raises is that of public perception. In chapter 3 verse 13 he says, All right, God. What if I go and I tell them that God sent me? And the people ask me, well, what's God's name? What do I say to them? What he's saying is, you know, God, they're going to look at me funny when I come with this stuff. And they're going to ask me some questions that I'm not going to know the answers to. And I'm going to look silly. In chapter 4, verse 1, Moses puts the issue a little more bluntly. And he says flat out, like, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. For they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. Moses is skeptical of this whole thing. He's at least as skeptical as you or I would be in his shoes because he knows how skeptical everyone else around him is going to be. The the people are going to laugh at the whole burning bush thing and and they're going to say he's crazy for thinking that God actually talked to him. And and they'll think he's even more crazy for thinking that he's going to go get Pharaoh, the most powerful ruler in the world, to release all of the slaves. Like, come on, Moses. The bottom line in all this is that Moses is paralyzed by what everyone else is going to think. And how many of us have been there before? There's something you know you ought to take action on, but you don't because of what your friends or your coworkers or your family is going to say about it. For me personally, this this is probably the biggest struggle in my life. Like, I, I want to be liked. I want to look good. I want to be impressive to other people. And so what others will think about me if I take that step, if I, if I take action on this thing, what others will think about me so often can just freeze me. It just stops me in my tracks. Like Moses, for so many of us, we're often paralyzed because we feel inadequate or because we're afraid of what others are going to think. Now look at chapter 4, verse 13. In chapter 4, verse 13, Moses finally gets to the heart of the matter. But he said, oh my Lord, please send someone else. Anybody else, God. I mean, what he's saying to God is, I don't want to do this. I don't want this job. I mean, God, God kind of patiently walks through and addresses all of Moses' problems, his inadequacies and his fears. And finally, Moses cuts to the chase. The real problem underlying all the other stuff is, God, I don't want to do it. 
I don't want to. See, Moses used to care, and maybe he still does care, but he's no longer compelled to do anything about it. And I think the reason why, why that's the case for Moses is because of, the, of all that it would cost him to take action here. To go on this mission is going to cost Moses in all kinds of ways. Like his life at this point isn't glamorous. He's hanging out with a bunch of dumb sheep all day. But at least it's comfortable and secure. He's got a family and a job and a house. It's comfortable. And it sounds like a whole lot of effort to go out on this mission that God's calling him to. And it's risky. Like from a worldly standpoint, going and doing what God's calling him to do, it makes no sense at all. Like he's crazy from a worldly standpoint. The cost is too high. So I don't want to do it. And at the end of the day, that's where a lot of us end up too. We care, or we used to care, about alleviating poverty, or about ending sex trafficking, or about protecting the sanctity of life, or, or about helping refugees, or about promoting racial reconciliation, or about reaching the unreached peoples of the world, or about reaching our neighbors with the gospel, or any number of other gospel causes. We care, or we cared about the mission of God. But we got burned, or we got tired, or we got busy, or we got comfortable. And now the cost is just too high, and God, I don't want to go. The problem for all of us runs far deeper than we're often willing to admit. When it comes to addressing the ills in our world, deep down the problem for us in so many cases is that the cost is just too high. And we just don't want to go. And at least Moses is honest about it here. There's this really poignant scene in the movie Hotel Rwanda where uh, the hotel manager, played by Don Cheadle, approaches a videographer played by Joaquin Phoenix. And uh, Don Cheadle's character has earlier seen some video footage of the genocide that uh, Joaquin Phoenix's character took. And, and so he, he comes up to him to talk to him about it. And, and Don Cheadle says, he's so glad that the world is finally going to see this footage. Because when they see the horrors of what's happening around them, when they see this video footage, they'll, they'll have to do something about it. They'll be so moved in their hearts, they'll care so much, they're going to send in the troops and they're going to do something to end this horrific violence. And Joaquin Phoenix's character looks at Don Cheadle. And, and he kind of sadly says, with a heavy heart, I think if people see this footage, they'll say, oh my God, that's horrible. And then they'll go on eating their dinners. It's an extreme example, but, but, on, but on a general level, that's what we do with so many issues in our world. That's what I do. We say, God, that's horrible, and someone should do something about it. And then we go right on eating our dinners. The cost is too high. I care, but it would be inconvenient or messy or complicated to get involved and take action. And I'm enjoying my dinner, so I don't want to go. So the fundamental problem for us as people is that at a heart level on so many of the things that God calls us to go and do, we just don't want to. We'd rather go on our own mission than on his. And that's really been the core problem of humanity from the very beginning. Our reluctance, our unwillingness, our stubborn disobedience to God. 
That's what got our world into this whole mess in the first place. We said to God, as collectively as people, we said, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do what you say. I like being the boss. I like being in control. I like being comfortable. I've used this analogy before, but, but it's like God, you know, God created us to have him in control of everything. It's like, it's like he made us to have him as the sun in the center of the orbit of our world. And with him at the center, everything else orbits properly. So there's harmony and there's peace and there's order and there's justice and, and there's right relationship with God and there's right relationship with others. Everything orbits rightly. But when we say no to God, it's like plucking the sun out of the center of the solar system and everything goes to whack. Everything goes out of whack. It goes to chaos. This is why there's so much oppression and injustice and evil in our world. Because we collectively have rejected the one who holds all things together. And so the bottom line is that our problem is a heart-level God problem. Our problem is that we want to go on our own mission instead of God's mission. And our problem runs far deeper than we think. So that's the second reality. But here's the third reality. And this is the good news in this beautiful text today. The call is bigger than you think. And the problem runs deeper than you think. But the remedy is closer than you think. The remedy is closer than you think. Moses has raised the series of problems with the call of God on his life, but now look with me at how God responds to each of Moses' objections. Chapter 3, verse 12. Moses objects, Who am I? And what does God say? Moses, you're not inadequate. Remember your pedigree. Moses, you're the man. You're a stud. You got it going on, Moses. Your problem is that your self-esteem is too low. You need to think better thoughts about yourself. You need the power of positive thinking in your life. That's what you need, Moses. No, God doesn't say any of that stuff. God doesn't say anything about Moses. All God says to Moses in that moment, I will be with you. I will be with you. Chapter 4, verse 11. Same thing happens. Moses objects, God, I'm not a good speaker. And God responds, go. And I will be with your mouth. I will be with you. Chapter 4, verse 15. Retweet. Moses objects, send someone else. And God responds by sending Aaron with Moses. And then he says, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth. I will be with you. Now in each of these instances, God gives Moses more than that. He gives him these signs to perform that will give him added credibility before the people. But the repetition here shows us that the main thing God is giving Moses is not the signs, it's himself. I will be with you. That truth is most evident in the central section of this narrative in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Chapter 3, verses 14 and 15 is one of the most important texts in the whole Bible. Look at it with me. In verse 13, Moses asks God what he should say if the people ask about God's name. And in context, asking what's his name was the equivalent of asking what sort of God is he? What is he like? Now it's been 400 years since Israel last heard from God. 400 silent years. And God has been silent in the face of their oppressions. And so for good reason, these people might want to know what's this God like? They got questions. And look at how God responds. Verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Now I'm going to get technical here for a minute because this is really important. So follow with me. Try to follow with me. 
In your Bibles, these I am phrases are likely in small caps. So all the letters are capitalized, but in a funny kind of way. And the reason for that is to highlight an important feature of the Hebrew text. In verse 15, you see another word in small caps, Lord. And whenever in your Bibles you see Lord in small caps, what you're seeing is the conventional way that English Bibles represent God's divine name, Yahweh. Now Jews stopped saying that name out loud millennia ago, so scholars don't actually know how it's supposed to be pronounced. But what we do know is that the divine name comes from the Hebrew verb Hayah, like karate chop, Hayah, which means to be. And in verse 14, when you see I am in small caps, it's that same verb, Hayah. And in verse 14, it's actually the exact same verb form as up in verse 12 where God said, I will be there. So you have all this repetition of Hayah, and verse 14 could actually be translated, I will be what I will be. So you might have a footnote in your Bible that shows you that down below. Okay, so if you just blacked out on everything I just said, here's what all of this means. What God is saying to Moses here is that when the people ask you about me, Tell them simply that I am. I am the God who exists. I am the God who is. I define myself. I am what I am and I will be what I will be. And I am the God who will be there with you. Wherever you are, whatever you're going through, I will be with you. That's my character. That's who I am. I am who I am and I will be there with you. So the God who has called the fugitive shepherd to go on this crazy mission to confront the most powerful ruler in the world responds to all of Moses' objections by saying, I will be with you. Moses, you're not qualified for this, but I will be with you. Moses, you're not a good speaker, but I will be with you. Moses, you are apathetic, but I will be with you. Moses, the people might think you're crazy, but I will be with you. And when they ask you who sent you, tell them, I will be with you. In other words, God's remedy is himself. God's remedy is himself. See, family, this is who God is. He's the God who comes to be with his people to remedy what's wrong inside of them and what's wrong outside of them. In our world today, so many people feel inadequate or afraid or just apathetic to what matters most in life. We've got these skyrocketing rates of depression and a mental health epidemic going on. And we look to medication and therapy and self-help books and podcasts to try to get us through it all. But what we need is something closer, someone closer. We need the one who says, I will be with you. When I was a kid, my dad was a high school basketball coach. And, and uh, when I was about 10 years old, he became a high school assistant principal. And so my whole life, my dad was an authority figure with some measure of power in the community. And because of that, there were always some people who didn't like me. There were kids who didn't get enough playing time on his teams, or, or kids who he thought gave him a raw deal whenever they got a detention or a suspension or something. And so when I was little, I'd often get picked on for that. Some of my dad's players who, who didn't get enough playing time, they'd make it a sport to throw little Jamie into the trash can outside the gym. And uh, when, I, when I was a little bit older, um, I'd be walking down the hall when my dad was the principal. And uh, older kids who, who had a problem with my dad, they would take it out on me. And they'd just like punch me in the arm just for fun. You know, that was kind of a regular occurrence when I was a kid. But do you know what happened whenever my dad would show up? None of that nonsense. When my dad showed up, if my dad was with me, I was totally free. 
When my dad was with me, I could be totally confident. I could run around the gym. I could play wherever I wanted to. I could run up and down the halls of the school. I could put my rollerblades on and go through the halls of the school if I wanted to. I could do whatever I wanted with confidence because my dad was with me. And he said it was okay. And he was in my corner. My dad didn't even have to do or say anything in those moments. Just being there, being with me, changed everything. Church, God says to Moses, I will be with you. Dad just showed up. And so in the next scene in chapter 4, Moses goes. He goes with God and God goes with him and God does everything he told Moses he would do. And the story of Exodus from that point forward is the story of God being with his people. As they confront Pharaoh and they flee Egypt and they wander the desert. And finally as they head into the promised land. All along the way God is with them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And in the tabernacle at the center of their lives. So what we see in the story with Moses is that God's remedy for what's wrong is himself. And when he sends his people, he goes with them. Dad shows up to be with his people to save them and to go on mission. Like Moses, God has sent all of us on a mission too. And he wants to work through us to accomplish his mission in the world and in the city of Chicago and right here in Rogers Park. But his remedy for our personal insecurity is it's not a pep talk to boost our self-esteem. His remedy for our fear of what others will think is not to tell us that everyone will always love us. His remedy for our apathy is not to just let us off the hook. His remedy for all of it is himself. And the place where we see that most clearly is in the person of Jesus. The first time we meet Jesus in the Bible is in Matthew chapter 1. And do you know what Matthew calls Jesus there in that passage where Jesus is introduced? Emmanuel, which means God with us. What God promised Moses he would do and what God did with the Israelites in the Exodus, we see God do most powerfully in the incarnation of Jesus. When Jesus stepped out of heaven and into history, God himself came to be with us and to save us. Jesus came and he set all kinds of people free from all kinds of oppression. He healed the hurting and restored the broken and confronted the vulnerable and fought and confronted the powerful and fought for the vulnerable. And all along the way he proclaimed the kingdom of God. In short, Jesus lived his life on mission for God in the world. And because he did, he too faced, faced oppression. Jesus was homeless and poor. He was rejected by people who thought he was crazy, including his own family. He was abandoned by his closest friends in his hour of greatest need. And he was ultimately convicted and executed for a crime he did not commit. Jesus lived out the mission of God in the world, and it cost him everything. For us, so often, the cost of living out the mission of God is just too high that we say, I, I don't want to do it. But that's why Jesus came. And paid the ultimate price. He cared and he took action to pay the cost that we deserve to pay but won't and can't. On the cross, Jesus took the cost of all the oppression and injustice and evil and apathy and sin in the world and in our hearts upon himself. And he stamped it all paid in full. And he did it so that we might be with him forever. Our rejection of God sends everything out of whack in the world. But when we receive Jesus, God returns to the center and he begins to put everything back in place. When we receive Jesus, God is with us once again. The Gospel of Matthew begins with Emmanuel, God with us. And it ends with Jesus sending his followers to go and live out his mission in the world. And the last words of Jesus in the last verse of that Gospel read like this. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. 
You see, the call is bigger than you think, and the problem runs deeper than you think, but the remedy is closer than you think. The remedy is a person, and the remedy is Jesus, God with us. And when you know that he's with you, that someone so powerful and so perfect loves you so much that he gave everything to be with you, that changes everything. It sets you free from fear and inadequacy and apathy. It sets you free to be bold and courageous and confident. It sets you free to go run around the gym and play in the halls of the school. If you're not a follower of Christ here today, you need that. You won't find that kind of love and presence and commitment from your therapist or from a pill you take or from a podcast you listen to or anywhere else. So today, if you feel shackled by the chains of inadequacy, you need Jesus, the perfect one who loves you perfectly despite your imperfection. Today, if you're paralyzed by fear of what others will think of you or do to you, you need Jesus, the one who has power over everyone and everything. And today, if you're immobilized by apathy and you just prefer to go on eating your dinner, you need Jesus, the one who left the comfort of heaven and took action to come after you. And today, if you see the oppression in the world and the oppression that lives in your own heart, you need Jesus, the one who was oppressed in order to set you free. The remedy is closer than you think. The remedy is God with us. And through him, you can be set free to live free now and forever. Today is Pentecost Sunday, where churches around the world remember and celebrate the giving of the Holy Spirit. Upon Jesus' ascension into heaven, he sent the Holy Spirit to be his permanent presence with his people. And so if you are a believer in Christ today, the remedy is so close that he actually lives inside of you. He lives in you and he never leaves you. So here's what all of this ultimately means for those of us who have been set free and have that spirit living inside of us here today. Go. Go on God's mission with him. You may not have a burning bush, but you've got this book and you've got Jesus and you've got the Holy Spirit inside of you. So go. And whatever it is that you know God is calling you to, be it welcoming a foster child into your home or inviting your neighbor over for dinner or volunteering at a pregnancy crisis center or relocating to a different neighborhood for the sake of mission or initiating a spiritual conversation with your coworker, starting to invest financially in a, in a ministry in the city or, or, or going on that first mission trip or signing up for whatever thing, whatever that thing is for you, go and do it. Go. But not just today. Always. This is not a call to just adopt some noble cause and baptize it in the name of Jesus. This is a call to live life on God's mission. That's the call. It's bigger than you think. But the great I am is bigger than you think too. So go and do it because he will be with you. He is with you and will be with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. God, we praise you today that you are with us. We don't have to pray and say, God, will you be with us? Because you are. You've promised to do it. That's who you are. You are the God who is with your people. We praise you that you showed up to a burning bush. And we praise you that you show up to us in a burning book. And God, I pray for us that we, as your people, would go. That we would live on mission for you. Thank you that you are with us. Help us to go in confidence today. I pray for those, God, who feel the fear and the inadequacy and the, the apathy. God, would you speak into their hearts? Help them to know your presence with them. I pray for those who, who, are, uh, who don't know you yet, who are far from you today. God, would you open their eyes to see you? Would they believe and know the God who is with us always? We give you thanks today. In Jesus' name, amen.